This episode has been brought to you in part by Canderell and Kingset Capital. Coming soon, affordable luxury condominium living at 908 St. Clair West. Nestled into a vibrant, one-of-a-kind neighborhood, 908 St. Clair West is a modern treasure, offering a sophisticated lifestyle inspired by St. Clair Village and prestigious Forest Hill. Register today at 908stclairwest.com. Welcome to Bonjour Chai, the hate is just a four-letter word edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, anti-hate legislation, can it work? We talk to an MP and a lawyer about new bills that are before Parliament. And uh, Alana has a conversation with Mayan Ziv about disabilities and inclusion in the Jewish community. Alana, David, how's your week been? You know what? Things have been uh, better, I feel like, since the world reopened in Toronto. Because Toronto is the center of the world now, apparently. Um, so it's nice to actually get out and do things and not feel like a hermit. I walked by the Trekkers the other day. Um, it was uh, strange. It was not on purpose. I just ha- was walking on Shabbat and uh, there was a bunch of cars honking. And I saw like a girl sitting with her dad in the car. I was like, wow, I wonder how this girl is going to take this memory in later in life. But if they were the cars, they weren't truckers. No, it was a truck. She was just in the front. Did I say car? You said cars. Well, they are cars. They're trucks. I was going to point out the fact that that, that this is not really about truckers anymore. This is about like people that are protesting in some amorphous way. And, uh, you know, it's... So is this girl getting schooling while in the truck while she's away from it? Or is she like being like like truck schooled right now? (laughs) Honestly, maybe. That's possible. Zoom schooled in the truck. That's a lot of layers. I mean, Alana, you talk about freedom in Toronto, but like we have been living more free than anyone else in Calgary. We got rid of almost all of our pandemic measures. You don't need a QR code anymore to enter a restaurant. Uh, you do have yet yeah, kids as of Monday will no longer have to wear masks in school. Um, so I'm I'm just breathing in that beautiful freedom air in my nostrils. How's Montreal, Avi? Uh, Montreal. Well, there was announcements about the uh, pathway to opening things up with If All Things Go Well by March 14th, which is, I guess, two years and a day um, after everything started, um, that things will be mostly fully reopened by that point. Um, apparently, house restrictions are completely over and uh, we're supposed to judge for ourselves um, our own level of risk and tolerance. Um, clearly this is just in time for Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, restaurants are moving to larger capacities. Bars are going to be opening soon. At some point, everything's going to be open and, uh, people are, uh, potentially breathing a sigh of relief. But, you know, we've been through this so many times already. Uh, we'll see what happens. I'm like, oh, great. I'll get to go to a restaurant. Maybe like, <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, yeah. Now, see, I've 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 been going to restaurants during the QR code because I felt actually pretty safe that everyone I knew me was double or triple vaxxed. Now that the QR code is out the window, I'm like, I don't know if I want to return to restaurants now that it could be any anybody right. in. That's fair. You know what I'm really excited for when uh, we don't talk about COVID anymore on the show? I was show. just thinking about this, that like every week when we <laughs> chat, it's just about restrictions <laughs> and this and that. <laughs> it feels That's like it's reality. so all-encompassing and i mean what yeah. else tell me something interesting that happened in your week that had nothing to do with covid i went to a, an improv comedy show last night it was like actually the first time probably in the entire pandemic that i went with a group of people they just reopened the theaters here and i've gone a couple times to this show 
um, with like one person, but not with like a whole group. And it felt like normal. Like you have to wear your mask inside and everything. But it was um, super funny. It's called Nice Time at the Comedy Bar on Bloor and Ossington in Toronto. Did you laugh a lot? I did laugh a lot. It was very cathartic. Did you laugh on people? Not to bring back COVID in, but... No, no. The, everything, the, everything's like separated. Wait, did you cure everybody around you from COVID? Because laughter is the best medicine? I'm, I believe someone's probably promoting that theory right now on YouTube. Yeah. Take some shots of ivermectin and some laughter. David, how, what about you? What happened this week that it was absolutely not COVID-related? Not COVID-related at all. Um, well, I was supposed to go away to the mountains, but about two hours before we left, John and I, we got a message that the Emerald Lake Lodge, deep in the Rocky Mountains, had to shut down for losing power. So John and I pivoted quick, and we spent a lovely time in Banff in the mountains. We hadn't been there in about a year, and it was really nice to get out, walk around, do a little trek around the mountains, go to the Fairmount Hotel, have a drink there. It was lovely to escape. Um all that, all the hassles here in the in the big city. It seems like there's like so much better stuff happening on the West Coast than what we have on the East Coast. So go and enjoy that. Come, everyone. Come to the mountains of Banff. Speaking of which, on the West Coast, we got this wonderful email from uh, Gary Kalmek uh, out in BC. Uh, Alana, you were taken by it. What was so interesting to you about this uh, listener uh, response? Well, uh, Gary's talking about an experience of being in a discussion group at his uh, show and pointed out how there's this uh, cognitive dissonance that happens um, in the community. And in these uh, discussion groups, it was more on like the older side of uh, the demographic. And I I pulled a couple quotes. So he says, there was one participant who insisted on telling everyone what terrible, unforgivable act Trudeau did that week, regardless if it was on topic or not. There was support for Trump, who was still president at the time. There was a staunch belief that Israel was in the right always. And there was a somewhat strong undercurrent of racism. And then I skip ahead and quote, how could you Jewish people hold the same views and opinions as the people who hate you for being Jewish? I'm assuming that was in reference to Trump from my memory. And then and the last quote that I pulled is, from what I saw last year, the right and left sides became tribal. If someone criticized Trudeau, you had to agree with everything that person said because he hates Trudeau as much as you do, regardless if their hatred or demands made sense. If a convoy had people flying swastikas, you can hand wave it away saying it was a few bad apples and taking away from the real message from the protest and it doesn't matter anyway. I believe the term quote-unquote cognitive dissonance is probably the best way to describe how Jews can support what is happening or selective judgment. So what, what do you take from that? I, I don't disagree. I think that the tribalism very much does exist in the Jewish community and we have... <laughs> Um, and and it's for the worse, uh, simply because we have forgotten the value of the people on the other side. You know, I was having a drink with a friend last night, not in a bar, in their home, um, and I was sharing something. And, you know, this is a, a big belief of mine. This is like something I should write a bigger paper about, although I don't know if it's my idea or if it's other people's ideas that have seeped in. I'm not going to take full credit for it. Doesn't matter. There are no new there ideas. Are no new ideas. The left needs to remember that the right is valuable for them and the right needs to remember that the left is valuable for them for very important and very specific reasons in that, in my mind, the right or people that are politically conservative for a better way of, of approaching it are people in theory that want that, that they recognize the change is happening um, and they want to put a stop to that. And people on the left say that we want to have progress. Now, the way in which in an ideal world in my mind or in my conception of this, that this should be happening is that the people on the left should be valuing the people on the right for reminding them 
how to slow down, how to slow their role, so to speak, how to slow down the progress that they're doing, that recognize that change takes time, that you have to convince people that are against this change um, and the downsides of whatever this change can happen. And that's where conservatives come in and say, at least a, theoret- a, th- a thoughtful one can say, I think that what you're saying is, is a good idea, um, but let's look at the downsides and let's figure this out as opposed to anything that you say is evil. And then the same thing happens on the other side. Um, a thoughtful conservative recognizes that change is probably good um, because the people on the left are showing them that these are important and great ideas. They're just um, there instead of saying, right, they value the liberals for pointing out, or the people that are politically liberal, for pointing out um, what are the issues where we're not necessarily seeing things because we tend to be politically conservative. And and the two really exist in, a, in an ideal world in this dance of like, I want to change, but I know that I have to slow it down. I uh, may like things the way they are, but I recognize that there's injustice in the world and we have to fix it. And so I'm going to learn from you. And that back and forth is at the core of so much of what we do. Um, It's at the core of Jewish dialogue and Jewish discourse from the Talmud to today. And we are missing that entirely. And rant. I mean, it sounds very, it's, it's, and it it sounds really wonderful. I don't think that's at all where our society is heading or, or, or in going in the future. And I really think social media has a huge part to play in the discourse itself. Now we allow everyone to have a voice and an opinion. And I really think social media is going to be the destruction of our civilization. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I don't disagree to some extent. (laughs) Go for I, it. I, I think we used to have gatekeepers, you know, people, rational people would be listened to and all the crazies on the far left and are the far right could not meet up and sort of talk through all their conspiratorial views until social media really came in. And now everyone can find each other. And I think that's the reason why, you know, these big trucker convoys were able to happen so successfully. And I'm not taking a claim on whether, you know, people are, are right or wrong in what they want to do. But I just think everyone who has some crazy notion can find someone else across the world with the same other crazy notion. And then they can build uh, a tribe of these different people. And this discourse is just going to make it worse. I love what Avi has to say in terms of we need to really listen to every everyone on both sides. I just think that is happening less and less because of social media. Well, well, yeah, uh, I feel like I'm kind of more leaning towards what Avi said. Um, I agree with you that social media is really destructive, but I don't think it's for those reasons. Like someone could easily find some club, I don't know, with people that have the same opinions as them. Yes, it's a little bit more global when you get to reach all these different people across the world. But to me, social media is just not a good way to have a conversation. And I think we've talked about this on the show before. Like you wouldn't necessarily say the same things to someone in front of them than you would on a computer. And that to me is the destruction of our civilization is people are not, like, communicating authentically. You know, there's... Um, That's what I think it comes down there's to. There's a journalist. Uh, he, he does book-length journalism, I guess you would say, uh, Tom Vanderbilt. And uh, I'm a big fan of his work. He wrote this book on traffic, uh, which I have reread several times because traffic is so endlessly fascinating to me, and I don't mean that facetiously at all. Um, but anyways, he has an entire section on road rage, and he points out that the science behind road mm. rage... Um, is due in large part, right, the, the reason why they're able to look at and, and say that people get that much angrier is because you're not able to communicate. You're in your bubble and they're in their bubble. And oh, you can't get into the other person's mind as to why they cut you off. And you don't know whether that person mm-hmm. um, has two kids in the car that are 20 minutes late for school because of something you did and they're complaining and they're crying and they want to, you know, 
get there because they're going to miss their bus to go snow tubing for the day or whatever it is. And you would totally for sure let them through. But you're this person that just got cut off. You mm-hmm. don't know why. You don't know what it's about. Or you don't know like whether the person is sick or whether the person is really. And that causes you to like amp up all the negativity in your own mind because you cannot connect with that person. You don't know. You don't have that interaction because you're literally in bubbles um, in, you mm. know, in traffic and that that, you know, amplifies that. And so it's exactly what you're saying, Alana, um, in in the traffic situation. And that is what happens in life also is that we are more and more in our own private personal thought bubbles and by extension using the social media thing um, in the bubbles of the people that agree with us because we um, talk to them and we're friends with them and we hear their voices. That is a great analogy. I'm, I'm going to steal that. That's really fascinating too. I think about road rage a lot because I, I, I don't have a car. So I'm usually biking or taking transit and I always get really annoyed when people have road rage because I'm like, why do you give into it? Like, you know that this is a stereotype that people have road rage. So why don't you just channel your feelings and try to stay calm and not take it out on everyone? Um, so that theory is is very fascinating. I kind of want to look more into that. Well, I will gladly lend you the book anytime or it's available at your public library. Tom Vanderbilt. Go check him out. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Montreal High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. In the wake of a multitude of hateful displays seen at the uh, truckers' protest in Ottawa, two private members' bills are currently in the House of Commons seeking to legislate hatred. The first from uh, Peter Julian of the NDP would prevent anyone from selling and displaying symbols that promote hatred. Uh, This would include swastikas and other Nazi symbols, as well as flags from the American Confederacy and other symbols of the white supremacy movement. The other from Kevin Waugh of the Conservative Party would prohibit Holocaust denial in any public forum. There's also talk from the Liberals of a revised version of Bill C-36, which died while still on the floor when the election was called last summer. Joining us to discuss his bill is the Member of Parliament for Saskatoon Grasswood, Kevin Waugh. Kevin, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Good to see you, Avi, and uh, looking forward to discussing the new bill that I um, introduced on uh, Wednesday in the House of Commons at C-250. Can you give us some background on the uh, genesis of your bill? Well, it's an interesting bill, as you know, because we already have hate speech legislation in this country so you know we've we've really mirrored that um, uh, towards the hate speech and you know the public incitement of hatred is really zeroed written into this bill as everybody knows so you know we have and there's been some concern when you bring out bills about free speech we have all the safeguards in it you know we have all the defenses so it really does um, kind of mirror the hate speech that is previously in the criminal code but this one will really zero in on the holocaust denial 
Now, why would you um, specifically care about that and not look towards uh, being more expansive the way that, let's say, Mr. Julian's bill is um, and be against various other forms of hatred as well? Yeah, very good question, Avi. You know, I passed, uh, this is my third private member's bill. So when you go into the private member's uh, list, just I've learned the first one I did in 2016, it was too broad, it failed. The one last year was uh, single event sports betting, and it was specific to open it up here in Canada. It passed. And I've learned when you bring private members bill, if the bigger the scope, you're not going to get it passed. There's always an issue with um, in committee with uh, with bills that are complicated. So the simpler you make the bill, the better off you are. In this case, it will be the Justice Committee, and then we'll see if we can move it out for a vote after that. But I have learned in the six years as a member of Parliament, make a private member's bill very simple. Be specific with it, and I have with this one, the Holocaust denial. So I was reading through your bill, and in it you said that anyone who promotes anti-Semitism other than in private conversation would be considered guilty. And I was curious if, let's say, you know, being on your computer, you're in a private chat or on social media, would that also be considered private conversation? No, I don't think so, David. I think um, what we've seen in this country, we've had some school issues, as you know, uh, even way back in 1984 with the Jim Keekster trial in Alberta. And we've seen recently the former teacher in Timmins, Ontario. I think that's what we're trying to stop here is, um, you know, the teaching of it. Um, in this case, the hatred, um, public forms. Um, so uh, this legislation, I think, is really designed in that. So me and you can have the talk as we're doing right now. I don't think there would be any incitement to that. But uh, I'm really worried in the public form as we move this out where this would go. So you mentioned that you have some things in place for people that might uh, give some pushback in regards to freedom of speech. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I can. Uh, so, you know, we've looked at the legislation uh, from subsection 319 of the Criminal Code Act, you know, um, established that the statements communicated were true, was one of them, and in good faith, the person expressed or attempted to establish by an argument an opinion on a religious subject or an opinion uh, based on belief of a, a religious text and if statements were relevant to any subject of public interest, the discussion of which was for the public benefit and if on reasonable grounds he believes them to be true. And then the fourth one that we looked at uh, was in good faith he intended to point out for the purpose of removal the matters producing or tending to produce feelings of hatred towards an identified of group here in the country of Canada. So that's what we've done. We're, this a little bit widens the scope, uh, but at the same time, Alana, I think um, this country needs this, especially what we've seen in this country in the last uh, two to three weeks. So I'm, I'm curious, actually, are you, because uh, I know that the uh, Conservative Party was vociferously against the uh, what was perceived as the anti-Islamophobia bill uh, or in the past. Um, would would you be yep. uh, very eager or would you encourage some of your colleagues to be very eager to uh, propose anti-Islamophobia legislation that would be narrowly focused against the Islamic uh, population in Canada that is also the victim of hatred um, in, in a very similar way? Or is there still reason for the Conservative Party to oppose anti-Islamophobia measures? 
Yeah, I, I, I would think the latter, to be honest with you, uh, Avi. Uh, I, was, I was in that committee back a couple of years ago in Heritage. I subbed in two or three times. Uh, that there is an example of what we're talking about where you get the broader range of this. And then the bill, you know, it was just a motion brought forward by the Liberals back then. Um, but this, the gravity of the Holocaust is enormous. And that's why I brought the bill out. Um, that was part of the reason I, I, I talked to you guys before. If I can just pin it down to, you know, in this case, uh, the Holocaust denial of the 40s, um, and, and educate people on this. I think this is the other reason I brought this out. Uh, I've got uh, two uh, adult children now, and they're both teachers. And uh, one of them went to um, Krakow uh, and really enjoyed herself over there. And it was a real education that I think that we need as Canadians. We're going to lose, uh, if we haven't lost already everybody from the Holocaust, but the March of the Living, really, in, in, in our family, was uh, a great moment for my daughter. She went over there, Bill Glide and Max Eisen, and we brought them to Saskatoon to do teachings in the collegiates in, in our city. And I was, I was there, and um, we can't forget about this. And uh, this is part of the reason I brought the bill out. We need an educational component to this. Um, and we're not getting that ed educational component. And it, and it scares me because I used to be a school board trustee for 10 years. And um, so once, you know, we forget about the Holocaust and then what? I mean, this is history. We need to, whether you like it or not, we need to um, look what went wrong, uh, learn from it. And that's part of the reason I did uh, Bill 250. Yeah, I, I guess part of me, I have a hard time understanding or squaring away the issue that if if you're not willing to create some sort of legislation against white supremacy or against Islamophobia or other forms of hatred in Canada, I understand that the idea behind be, it being narrow. And and look, it's important. I'm not saying that what you are doing isn't important. Uh, to be fair, the sponsor of your bill actually was a previous co-host of this show. Uh, Melissa Lanceman, um would have been one of these squares um, had she not been elected, but uh, we appreciate her election. We love her as a member of parliament. Um, but um, it, it almost sounds like some sort of signaling to the Jewish community by the Conservative Party to go and say, or by an individual, and I know that you don't have many members um, in Saskatoon that may be Jewish. Uh, actually, I am marrying a, a couple from Saskatoon this summer, a Jewish couple from Saskatoon. So um, there is that. But um, how is that not signaling to Jewish community that, you know, we stand with you where you're not willing to necessarily stand against other forms of hatred as well? Well, I am uh, standing uh, at forms of other hatred. It's just, uh, you know, it, as I said to you, this was uh, a bill that I, I knew as a PMB, the wider scope you get it, it goes nowhere. Uh, I saw it with 103, the motion 103, it just went nowhere. And we went around in circles in committee for months. And quite practically, it was a waste of time. Uh, we just had the conversation, the motion, you know, um, and that's the other thing. Motions really do little or nothing in the House of Commons. So the bill is, uh, it's a start. And and I think, uh, you know, as parliamentarians, we'll see where this bill goes in the coming months. But it's the start of a dialogue. And uh, that's why I brought it out. And um, I, I understand your 
your concerns and, uh, you know, other and especially with the convoy incidents that we've had here in not only in Ontario, but Alberta and other places in this country. I'm curious as to how you uh, yourself define anti-Semitism. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I mean, the legislation, as far as I'm concerned, would make the Holocaust denial one of the main indicators of anti-Semitism and the radicalization illegal in this country. We do have a problem right now in this country. As I said, we've all seen that. And, uh, you know, we've got to protect the truth. And uh, that's why I brought the bill out, Ilana. You know, public incitement of hatred. It's been written in the criminal code. This bill coincides with the public incitement of hatred. Uh, we've just, uh, as I've been saying here the last couple of minutes, it's standalone legislation because of the gravity of the Holocaust. So, um, But we'll see where it goes. Um, I'm happy I introduced it. I'm not Jewish, which is another reason maybe, um, you know, as a backbencher of the Conservative Party, um, you know, I have nothing to gain from this. Um, it's just uh, it, the country right now needs this. And uh, I was in a position through the private members bill. See, when you draw, I yep. was number 24. So I'm you up got a, first. You got a better I, lottery number than Peter, I guess. Exactly. He's, I think, 73 or something. And uh, I checked. Yeah. And I'm 24. <laughs> so that's why I, you know, he introduced his before me. I don't know yeah. why he did. But your that. number is higher. So uh, yeah, we know I'm, how that I'm, works. Exactly. His is probably dead in the water as a result. Well, he's a year away. So I don't yeah. know why he introduced it when he did. Um, he's a year away. He's not even close to, I mean, uh, it's a minority parliament. I might not be close either, depending on what happens here. But at least I'm going to get this looked at uh, in the year of 2022. Now, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, the trucker convoy that's currently probably still in Ottawa and is causing disruptions across the country itself. Uh, you were photographed with Andrew Shear while at the trucker convoy itself in Ottawa. And I was curious whether... Some of the people, you know, who did have hate symbols like the swastika there, I was curious if those same people run afoul of the bill you are now promoting. Yeah, you know, um, last Thursday I did meet. I'm a member of Parliament and caucus chair of Saskatchewan. So we did have a number, a number of trucks down here in Ottawa, and we decided last Wednesday to go over and, and just have a dialogue with these people. Um, I, I've stayed all along. I'm not supporting or condoning the convoy, but my job as a member of Parliament from Saskatchewan, there was about 10, 11 trucks here. And I just wanted to hear from them. And then I took the picture with the MPs and the senator from Saskatchewan. Um, most of them, by the way, have left now. I've only seen one truck here. Uh, and that's the other issue in Ottawa. Things are starting to open up. Even on Wellington, there's a lane opening and so on. But no, we got to stop all of this um, Nazi flags and swastikas. And I think um, we all know that. And, um, you know, there was an element with this convoy. Um, and maybe it's still here. I don't know. I haven't seen much of it. But there is an element that we have to call out. And uh, as Canadians and as members of Parliament, we should be calling it out. And could you speak more broadly to the penalties associated with this bill itself? What if, if someone is accused of having hate symbols or promoting hate symbols? What would it look like? Would it look like jail time or a fine or a slap on the wrist? Well, I guess that would be up to the court system. You know, David, I think uh, I certainly have given uh, in my uh, bill 
for the criminal code for somebody to look at it. That I mean, when you go to court on these uh, situations, it's it's a one-off. You you guys know that. Uh, somebody in Saskatoon may have a different opinion than someone in Montreal. So, uh, but at least uh, I think we've started the dialogue on this. And for the criminal code, we'll we'll amend it a little bit and and see what happens here. So going back to your uh, your moment where you were photographed and posted on Twitter, right, uh, with with the, the convoy, because you, as you say, you really believe in dialogue. I, there's two things that seem to be niggling at me with this. Um, if if we really, first of all, I mean, how do you how does one know when you're meeting with these people if you know that the protests in general had a lot of um, anti-Semitism around there, right? So if somebody yells, according to your legislation, somebody yells Hitler was right in the streets as part of a protest, they would be subject to the criminal code. Um, are, can we be sure, for example, that any of the people that you met with were uh, not members of the protests that were um, yelling out racial slurs and anti-Semitic and anti-Holocaust um, slurs in that, in that sort of way? Um, and if we really also believe in dialogue, the way that you talk about it, um, doesn't a bill like this sort of shut down the dialogue before it even gets started when it comes to Holocaust denial? Um, in theory, one might argue that the whole purpose of having free speech is to let the market of ideas really work against that and not have to worry about legislating. Because as soon as you legislate something, the person goes and says, I'm sitting in jail because of my beliefs. I'm not interested in have, ever having a dialogue or changing my ideas ever again because uh, I'm mad at the other side for putting me in jail for something that I believe to be true. Yeah, uh, no, I, of course. I mean, we just went over last Wednesday. I haven't followed these people since they've been in Ottawa, so I have no idea what they did the previous Saturday or Sunday or or leading up to it or even after that. Uh, you know, our our but that that potentially puts you in a in a conflict where somebody who may have violated your law or or your potential future law would be somebody that you're meeting with and having a dialogue with, right? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, okay. I'm not going to apologize on that. Um, you know, <laughs> these guys were from Foam Lake and Carnduff and uh, St. Brew. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't they're, know hey, that, David. There, I mean, there are Holocaust I'm, deniers everywhere in Canada. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's the other extremists, too, as we found out. For sure. For sure. <laughs> so so you're not afraid of it shutting down dialogue, though, um, across? Uh... No, I think, no, we need this. I, I, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, look what's happened here in Ottawa when we haven't had the dialogue that the governments, whether it's federal, municipal or provincial, what it's caused. I mean, um, we have people in this country right now that are a little upset over the mandate situation, but we, we do have to respect one another for their opinions. Uh, but there does have to be some laws associated with this. And uh, we're seeing that now that, you know, I said yesterday, I was scrummed in the media, you know, what's your position today on the convoys? Well, it's always been, they've, they've said their piece, it's time to move on. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, I agree with all three of you. I don't know who's involved in the convoy um, on extremists or, or, or just people coming down here to have a voice. Uh, but I think it is time to move on on the convoys, whether it's in Windsor, whether it's in Coots, whether it's in Ottawa or wherever it is this weekend. Mr. Waugh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks very much. One of the things that seems to be confusing to many Canadians is the fact that anti-hate bills seem to contradict values of free speech and, according to some, even step into the realm of thought crimes. 
Joining us to untangle the issues is Julius Gray. Maître Gray is an attorney based in Montreal and is noted for his work on human rights issues in Canada. Mr. Gray, welcome to Bonjour Chai. It's a pleasure. So this law, this anti-Holocaust um, denial bill and other bills that are similar to it, uh, are these even feasible? And do they, do they work? And if they do, how so? You know, you can prohibit things and you can charge people. If you remember, Mr. Keekstra was charged and convicted. But I do wonder if these things are not counterproductive. In the first place, when it comes to Holocaust denial, there is no event in world history that is better documented, mostly because the Nazis themselves recorded and kept records and filmed and so on. Anybody who's denying the Holocaust is just nuts. Uh, we do have a parallel, although there's a, a vicious part to Holocaust denial that there isn't there. There is the Flat Earth Society. People go around saying that the Earth is flat. Now, should we prohibit them from saying it? It's obviously wrong. We also have the problem now, for instance, and it's much more complicated, where most people believe that the anti-vaxxers are completely wrong, uh, and, and that, in fact, they're possibly causing a serious problem for hospitals and, and, and the health system. But is that enough to ban? Is anything gained by preventing somebody from saying something which is obviously false? In a case called Zundu, the Supreme Court held, and it did deal with Holocaust denial, that false information is protected by human rights, by freedom of expression. And I wonder if it is not easiest to let people talk and simply to assume that most Canadians are not going to be seduced by it. I'll point out to you that there's no country that banned hate speech more completely than Tito's Yugoslavia. That's because they were sitting on a cauldron, they knew that uh, there, was, there were all these nationalities that hated each other and they really prevented that. And as soon as the government was gone, it all broke out in the worst possible way with hundreds of thousands of people killed. So I wonder if it works. Now, in Canadian law, hate is prohibited, but hate has to be narrowly defined the way uh, Mr. Justice Dixon defined it in Zundo. Hate is not a word of casual connotation. It refers only to the most extreme. I personally think that hate is a legitimate limit, but it's a legitimate limit when there's direct harm. If you're trying to uh, direct a mob to attack a minority, if you're uh, trying to destroy somebody through hate speech or persuade somebody to do something to someone, then surely it should be, it could be banned. But to prevent people from stating something that is, first of all, patently false, and secondly, that uh, isn't believed by many people at all, uh, on, on the fears that it's going to be believed. I mean, how stupid do, should we believe Canadians are? They're not going to believe Holocaust or not. Um, so uh, I, I think it may be counterproductive. Now, I do want to state this. I have no sympathy for the Holocaust deniers. I think many of them are doing it because of a dislike of Jews or because of some crazy political theory that they have. And I certainly think that Holocaust deniers should be, like Mr. Keekstra, banned from teaching history in school because 
obviously they're incompetent, just like flat earth people should not be teaching geography in school or geography in, in uh, uh, university. But to make it a criminal offense to say something that is patently untrue uh, is ridiculous, can be disproved uh, in 10 seconds, I think is counterproductive and simply leads those people to claim that they're martyrs. Now, you mentioned that Canada has anti-hate speech legislation already. So I'm just curious in terms of, is it the fact that this law doesn't have enough teeth to sort of look into these people flying swastika flags itself? Is there something missing that sort of this private member's bill needs to address? Or do you feel that Canada's hate laws, anti-hate laws are adequate enough for us to have our society? They're surely adequate enough. I think they go too far. I think, I don't think Kickster should have been criminally convicted. I think he should have been thrown out of school, but I don't think he should have been uh, criminally convicted. Uh, the thing about Holocaust denial is that it's not traditional hate speech. A person is not necessarily foaming at the mouth, uh, screaming insults, etc. He appears to be calm and saying, you know, this didn't happen. There's no historical evidence of it. So it might not be caught by Mr. Justice Dixon's uh, statement in the Keekstra, hate is only the most extreme. It may not be the most extreme. It may be something that would uh, still be protected, and especially because of the Zundo case. But then I asked myself, should it not be protected? And I'll give you an example in Canadian history that shows you the danger of this type of law. Uh, Keekstra was convicted. Now, nobody's very sorry for Keekstra. It's obviously mad with that crazy idea that uh, the Jews and Stalin and Hitler together did the Holocaust. Uh, he, was, he was a totally uh, nutty individual. But Mr. Pelado, who was the head of the mogul of media in, in Canada, said, Jews take up too much place. I've asked my journalists not to consult Jews, not to interview as many Jews, etc. Mr. Pelado was capable of doing much more harm than Keekstra. Nobody believes Keekstra, but Pelado was an influential figure and said, nothing happened to Pelado. Uh, so uh, you just wonder whether these uh, laws aimed at extirpating this type of extreme and irrational, mad uh, rant about obvious things is not counterproductive, does not threaten freedom of expression, because what if, um, uh, something is uh, false. Um, uh, I mean, it's not possible in the case of the Holocaust, but there might be other things that, that other historical truths that could be uh, upset and, uh, and, and doesn't do very much to anyone. The fact that somebody is denying the Holocaust will not set off a chain reaction of people questioning. So let's, let's just entertain this idea that the bill does go through and becomes a law, let's just say in a hypothetical reality, how would that even be enforced? How could you prove that someone is a Holocaust denier and find these types of people? The person might publish, the person might state in public and there would be recordings or witnesses, etc. It's normally a matter of evidence. What I think would happen in a trial is that a person would challenge the validity of the law. They'd probably lose, but might win that, that Mr. Justice Dixon's justification of the most extreme doesn't include uh, peaceful and seemingly neutral uh, 
Holocaust denial. That, that's just madness. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, so there would be a constitutional debate. Uh, but I don't think, I do not think anybody will benefit from that law. And ask yourself this question. There may be all sorts of people who don't like Jews. Maybe it's all sorts of people who don't like French Canadians. I mean, I see graffiti all over the place in Montreal. It's fairly unpleasant, anti-French, anti-English, anti-Semitic, anti-anything, anti-Muslim, and it's, it's awful. Uh, I do not hear, I have not met a Holocaust denier in my whole life. I think you might count them on the fingers of one hand in Canada. Who will benefit from this law? This law seriously, uh, I think, imperils uh, civil liberties because we live in a time when uh, people, uh, uh, there are official truths proclaimed and questioning the, the truths might get into problems. I'll give you an example. It is generally believed and said by all universities that all sorts of things that women went through in the 18th and 19th and 17th century were the result of government by a patriarchy. Now, I think it's possible to argue there was never any patriarchy. Who uh, elected it? Who named it? Etc. Is somebody going to say that's hate speech or that's gender discrimination, etc.? It's not at all. I mean, I'm a fervent believer in equality of men and women. I would fight for it. But I, I think you could question that. So the problem is Holocaust can't be questioned, not seriously, not, not in any, any way. But wouldn't the precedent from this allow you to uh, uh, prosecute people who are not preaching hate, but are simply asking questions? Or somebody who writes a book saying the American South before 1865 was not all bad. There were all sorts of things about it that were terrible, but it wasn't the sort of hate thing that's now being described. Is that going to be hate speech? I don't think so. So what strikes me about the law about Holocaust deniers is this, and I would sum it up as follows. Holocaust denial is seriously impossible. It's just totally ridiculous. Nobody believes that, except maybe three or four nuts uh, in, in Canada. They have no chance of gaining support. They do not succeed in eliminating more serious things like Mr. Pelado's remarks. And the law might lead if the present political correctness continues unabated to restricting uh, discussions of history about all sorts of issues, gender, race, uh, anti-Semitism. What if somebody came up, somebody wrote what Karl Marx wrote in the 19th century, the Jews should assimilate. Is that hate? I don't think so. I think it's, you might have disputed, but it's not hate. Um, uh, so um, uh, in the end, I don't see that the law is useful. If I can pivot just a little bit, because you brought up, you know, graffiti and other um, non-Nazi uh, uh, or non-Holocaust-related uh, symbolism, um, there is another private members bill. Uh, it, to be fair, it's on, almost certainly to fail because of uh, where it's at in parliamentary procedures um, that seeks to ban the sale of any sort of hate symbols as well. And I know that other people have brought things up in this way as well. Um, how does that even work? Do we, you know, does 
is that something that is more viable, less viable? The idea that, well, you shouldn't be able to sell something with a swastika on it or, um, you know, any sort of Confederate flags and things along those lines that you're allowed to own them. But uh, I don't know what that means in terms of making them versus selling them versus giving them away. Um, what do we make of laws like that or uh, proposed ideas like that? I think they're also grossly excessive. And you, you, you came up with the reason why. The swastika is very special. It's awful, and people shouldn't uh, use it right now. Uh, you know, it used to be a symbol of other things uh, in Iranian mythology, but now it's been forever associated with Nazism, and it's horrible. Confederate flags, is that hate? I don't think so. Uh, it's been used all over the place, and it's used in movies, and it's used in all sorts of things. I think we're just basically not trusting Canadians enough. 99% of Canadians, 100% of Canadians practically, know the Holocaust took place. Just about everybody knows that slavery was awful and dreadful and should not uh, uh, ever recur again. And, and there is some slavery in the world today, but we have to work to abolish it and uh, traffic in women and so on. Uh, the danger from the a Canadian saying something like that, you know, I know we people always say one person says it, then two people say it, and then it's too late. Nazism didn't happen because Hitler said it and nothing happened to him. Nazis happened because it was a deep-rooted economic and social problem, and there was a hate that had lasted centuries. Uh, the belief that because somebody says something, the rest of Canada will follow is totally unrealistic. Now, Maitl, you, you mentioned, you just said that, you know, 100% of Canadians believe the Holocaust happened. But, you know, according to the stats that have come through, more and more younger children are not being educated on the Holocaust. They know nothing about it. They say maybe 6 million was exaggerated. And it seems like as we move forward into the future, less and less people know and understand that the Holocaust. And for me, what I do want to focus on is social media itself, that as you sort of said, you have one person talking about the Holocaust, denying the Holocaust. It has a ripple on effect. And now it can really spread like wildfire in the social media landscape that that first person is, in a sense, lighting a fire. And that has led to certain genocides like the Rohingya genocide, where some people state very quickly on social media within a few days that, oh, these people are doing this and we have to protect ourselves. But don't you think in our new social media landscape that just saying these things, while maybe not hate speech, according to you, can really set a dangerous precedent. I think uh, the other side is even more persuasive, that preventing people from saying it will restrict all sorts of speech and put people in a situation where the past can never be questioned. When you say that young children don't know about the Holocaust, or that people know less and less and are, could be persuaded by this sort of thing, what you're really telling us is that we're failing in the teaching of history. Well, that may be true, but um, uh, to suggest that people actually have heard about it and because of anti-Semitism don't believe that it's there and some don't believe it's true, that's not so. What there may be is a certain degree of ignorance and therefore we should be working the other way. Instead of spending our time prosecuting a couple of nuts across Canada, we should be spending our time giving conferences, uh, discussing what happened, comparing the Holocaust with the Rohingya, uh, Rwanda, 
uh, showing that there's something in the human being, human psyche, that is very frightening and very ugly, rather than not discussing it, putting our head in the sand, the way Tito did, because he had no choice, because there were so many groups that they hated each other so much. So he tried simply to repress it. But look at what a disastrous effect. The Yugoslav civil war of the 1990s was hundreds of thousands of, of lives, the only place uh, in Europe where this happened since 1945. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think, I think the law to prevent somebody from saying something like that is uh, bad judgment, not because there's something nice about the denial, not because the people who do it are, are anything other than stupid and madmen, but because there are other ways to spend our money, other ways to educate children, and because there is no possibility that the ravings of a couple of guys are gonna set off Canada. So in your, um, if you were a legislator at this point, as opposed to on the other side of the, the, the equation, um, what would an ideal set of laws um, in this sphere be, if any laws at all, or do you think that any sort of uh, protections or any sort of discussions around legislating hatred, legislating language or speech or anything like that should be done? I think uh, much of what should be done is in the field of education. Now, of course, we realize right away that if we're doing that in Canada, then it's mostly a provincial concern. The provinces should be making certain that history courses are complete, that they're not simply addressing current uh, uh, issues uh, uh, that are presently important, that they teach children the important issues about the past. Uh, the federal government can assist because there is a federal power in organizing conferences and in, in having debates. Um, I think uh, when somebody rants and raves about this, one should use the overwhelming evidence that we have. The nasty films which show it, which show people going into gas chambers, which shows mountains of, of, of skeletons, the films taken by the Red Army and, and when they entered the camps, uh, they're shaking. I heard a, an interview with a man who was later a Soviet general, but was a, a, a captain or a lieutenant when he entered and he said, he hasn't slept well a single night since 1945, since we entered that place. And, and, and you know, that can be shown. People will know that. Um, we're losing our time. Who gained from punishing Keekstra? Uh, from throwing him out of school? Yes, his students gained. You can't have a raving mad teacher teaching you this. But from incarcerating him, from doing all these things, nobody gained. Who will gain from proper history teaching? Who will gain from freedom of expression so that other issues, such as the South or the Patriarchate, or assimilation versus identity can be debated fully without fear. Everybody will gain. So once again, I understand the good faith of the MP who's putting this forward, but it seems to me to put it, be putting Canadian money in the wrong place. Put it in education and discussion. You have a free discussion of the Holocaust, for instance, but no, no doubt what happens. And the, the, the side describing it will have uh, everybody 
uh, in tears within five minutes, whereas the, the, the not denying it will be laughed out of there. Um, the, um, similarly, for all the other things, restrictions on freedom of expression, in my view, are only possible or reasonable when there is a direct and immediate harm. Screaming fire in a cinema, telling a mob to go to a mosque or go to a synagogue and do something. Uh, things that immediately arouse hatred, uh, danger, uh, attacks on individuals. The forbidding discussion of theoretical topics is useless and at times dangerous because you'll catch things that should be the subject of discussion, not Holocaust denial. Maître Gray, thank you very much for joining us on Bonjour Chai. It's a pleasure. February is Jewish Disability Awareness, Acceptance, and Inclusion Month, and I got the chance to talk to a very inspiring local Jewish activist, Mayan Ziv. Today with us, we have guest Mayan Ziv, an activist, photographer, and entrepreneur based here in Toronto, Canada, where I am as well. So Mayan lives with muscular dystrophy and focuses her work on increasing awareness around disability issues as well as improving accessibility. In 2015, she founded Access Now, a crowdsourced app to map the accessibility status of locations worldwide. She has since received multiple awards, including the City of Toronto Access Award and the David C. Only Leadership in Accessibility Award. Mayan was also named as Canada's Top 40 Under 40 last year. Mayan, welcome to Bajor Chai. Hi, nice to be here. So for those of us who might not know, can you tell us a bit about what muscular dystrophy is? Uh, yeah, so I was born uh, with my disability. Uh, and basically the way it's uh, affected my life is that I uh, experience muscle weakness. So I use a wheelchair. There are many types of muscular dystrophy, but... Um, Mine uh, kind of impacted my ability to walk, so I navigate the world using a wheelchair. So tell us a bit more about your app. It's pretty amazing uh, as I was looking it up. What gave you the idea for it and how did you go about making that happen? So Access Now really uh, began with my own just experience. Because I've used a wheelchair throughout my life, I've, I've constantly struggled to navigate a world that really hasn't always been built with me in mind. So, you know, these days we all experience what it feels like to not be able to go somewhere or do something you want. Um, but that's been, you know, the story of my life because restaurants or stores or offices or literally anything you can think of, you know, so many times that I'm showing up and there are steps at the entrances or, you know, a broken elevator that nobody, you know, even remembered to fix. Uh, and so these experiences, you know, of booking a trip, showing up in front of a hotel with all my luggage and not even been, being able to enter because um, the ramp that they had thought that they have uh, was actually just for, you know, buggies and, and delivery carts and not actually meant for wheelchairs. So there's always been this type of un, um, uninformed uh experience where people either don't know what accessibility means or uh, I haven't been able to find anything about the accessibility of, of where I want to go, what I want to do. And so Access Now was just kind of my own personal response 
to that problem. It was a way for me to begin solving my own problem. And along the way, I knew that if, you know, I could begin addressing it here in Toronto, uh, the likelihood of being able to help somebody else was pretty significant as well. And that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. I have a question, which I feel really silly asking, but that means probably other people have this question too. So you just talked about a ramp that could be used for buggies, but not for wheelchairs. So what would be the distinction? Uh, well, in that specific example, it was just, uh, it really pointed to, you know, I'd, I'd call ahead, I'd ask a hotel, hey, are you accessible? Yes. Well, do you have a step at the entrance? Oh, wait, actually we do. But we have a ramp. Okay, great. Uh and, and so, you know, I, I never would think to even ask what is the ramp like, but it was so narrow. It was really made for kind of like a, okay. a trolley with one wheel on it to carry luggage. Uh, gotcha. And it wasn't, and it was so uh, steep that it couldn't actually, you know, drive up six stairs. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't really a ramp, uh, but it just kind of points out that even when people have the best of intentions, unless they really know what to look for, mm-hmm. um, there can be some pretty significant gaps in, in understanding about what accessibility includes. On that note, where do you feel like there are other gaps in a more, let's use the word mainstream understanding or like, <laughs> maybe that's not a good way to look at it, but the the wider world, um, where do you see the problem um, lies what areas do you think more people need to know about when it comes to this uh, issue? Well, I think a lot of people assume that accessibility doesn't impact their lives uh, uh, or that it's somehow somebody else's problem. Uh, And the reality is that the world around us is uh, very much informed by accessible design and accessible products and services. And every time you, you know, use your, your phone and you send a text message or, you use an electric toothbrush or, you know, you push a stroller with your newborn uh, over a curb cut at the end of the sidewalk. Uh, Those are all forms of accessibility that are benefiting and serving everyone. And so I think what, what the major disconnect is in people's understanding and awareness about what accessibility is and, and who it serves. And when we realize that accessibility really helps us create inclusive and and supportive experiences for everyone, I think that there's a lot more motivation to understand how we can all be part of the solution as opposed to, you know, thinking that accessibility only benefits a few and really is somebody else's responsibility. Right. I have a couple thoughts on that. One is that when I was preparing for this interview, I read somewhere that your app also opened up doors for other types of inclusive needs. Can you talk a bit about that? So, you know, when we started building Access Now, it was really me on my own with an idea and the support and goodwill of of people in the community who just believed enough to help make something possible. Uh, I never had built a business and I, I definitely didn't know about, you know, how to build a tech company. But along the way, what happened is because it it really grew out of such a grassroots and community-based initiative, the, the platform itself also provided people an opportunity to share their own experiences about what they were looking for, what accessibility meant to, to people who I'd never spoken to or heard from. And, and that's really how I realized that you know, even in my own understanding, there were gaps. I was limited in what I expected 
accessibility to be because I use a wheelchair. But to someone who is blind or, you know, someone who might be deaf or hard of hearing or, you know, someone who might be sensitive to smells uh, or, or noise levels or sound levels uh, or lighting levels, um, you know, there, there are so many different ways in which accessibility can can be meaningful to someone. And, and really, the idea is to expand continuously our understanding of what an inclusive and accessible space is. If you think about things like gender neutral washrooms or scent free spaces or spaces that are, you know, friendly to, to guide dogs. Um, these are things that I definitely wasn't thinking about in my own understanding of accessibility. But as we've grown the company, uh, we've also grown our, our definition of what accessibility includes. Mm -hmm. So the second thing that I wanted to bring up was I saw a, a tweet that you'd put out, and I'll quote it here. Why do people assume disability issues are charitable issues? I'm not looking for a handout. Changing the financial bias associated with disability is critical to changing the way we value accessibility within our economy. And I, that really made me think, because I think it's true growing up, especially in the Jewish community, there is like this kind of lens of, oh, this is a charitable thing, make a donation and do this type of work. So how do we make that change happen? Yeah, I, I, it's definitely something I think a lot about. I remember, you know, when I started uh, building Access Now, people assumed it would be a charity. Uh, and, and we built a tech company like any other. It's, it is a business and I think it's important to recognize that you can, you know, be committed to both profit and purpose at the same time. And that in some ways that actually helps create a more significant or, or widespread impact. And so I think, you know, when we talk about accessibility, recognizing that when you invest in an accessible, let's say, storefront or an accessible website, or even accessible programming if you're hosting an event, you know, including things like uh, captioning or sign language interpretation. There are many ways in which accessibility manifests, as I've kind of alluded to. But when you invest in, the, in, in committing to creating an accessible experience, you also then open your doors, uh, physically or virtually, to a much broader portion of the population that might not even recognize that they need those services. So upwards of 20% of the population benefits from accessibility. You know, around the world, there, there are uh, wow. over a billion people who experience a disability today. And in the next, I'd say, five to 10 years, you'll see a major influx of, of economic activity geared towards companies that are accessible and experiences that are inclusive, because that's what's on people's minds right now. And also as people age, as people acquire disabilities over the course of their lifetimes, people are expecting the same quality of life. People don't want to give up the things that they are used to having just because now, you know, they might have to walk differently, or maybe they're using a walker uh, right. or, or any type of assistive device. So I think recognizing the, the competitive advantage that, that is out there for businesses uh, to invest in this space uh, is a really important way for us to shift our thinking because it also then goes back to what do we value? You know, and the extra things that you put at the end of your day that if you have time for are usually not the ones that get you up in the morning and the ones that drive forward change. So that's really what the, the message is about that. 
Amazing. Thank you so much, Mayan, for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. Now's the time in our show when we get to the Nachas. What has been making us feel good about ourselves, Canada, Judaism, all those pieces together? Alana, what's your Nachas of the week? So my Nachas is a very adorable children's book that came out this week called B is for Bagel. It was written by uh, Rachel Teichman, or maybe it's Rachel Teichman. Um, and the description is, from Asiago to Zatar and everything in between, B is for Bagel teaches the whole alphabet while introducing children to traditional and innovative bagel flavors. Vibrant photographs of each life-size bagel will make turning pages so much more fun. I just think that's such a cute way for kids to learn their alphabet because everyone loves a good bagel. What's the X-flavored bagel and the Q-flavored bagel? Quiche, quiche flavor bagel. <laughs> Xylophone flavored bagel, obviously. <laughs> I'm gonna have to buy the book and check that out. But that's awesome. What, what's your What's your favorite bagel flavor? When you get What's your bagel order? An everything bagel. I like um, the the one with like all the different toppings. I don't really eat bagels that much the, anymore because the I everything just, bagel. Everything. It's because I'm I'm gluten. I, I I don't eat gluten anymore. So like I literally don't remember these things. But the everything one was the one that I liked. And or like white seed, just like a classic white seed. With what inside? Oh, with what on it? Um. So when I was like, what's your total bagel order? My total bagel order. I didn't really, I wasn't really into cream cheese as much when I was younger. So I actually used to get it with like butter and lox and then like um, onion slices, like red onion, tomato. Yeah, probably something like that. I'm, I'm going to concur. It's it's just, it, it's an everything bagel, but that is it. I don't need to put anything else in the bagel itself. I'll just walk away with a dozen and chew them. Well, yeah, the warm, soft chewiness. I used to love eating those bagels and it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's good. What about Avi? I uh, yeah sure. So I um, District Bagel in Montreal has uh, two locations, and one of the bagels that they have is um, is a uh, Montreal steak spice bagel. Now Montreal steak spice is this weird thing that exists everywhere but in Montreal. Um, but uh, you know what I mean. Um, like the amount of people that send me like pictures that Americans are like, look, I just found this in, in the in the grocery <laughs> aisle in, in the spice aisle. Montreal steak spice. I'm like. I don't know, Montreal Steak Spice. Anyway, so, so they make funny. a Montreal Steak Spice bagel, and I get it with olive cream cheese. And uh, that's that really good. It's like the double Ooh. whammy of uh, savoriness, uh, and that's it. I've never been a huge fan of the lox and cream cheese. That is heresy for a lot of people. I get it. Um, yeah, it's yeah, like too I don't much, know. I like right? the lox flavor pure. If it's a good like a lox lot. is like just good on its own, and uh, so that's my... Uh, that's my my bagel order. David, what's your nachas of the week? Well, I'm going to also recommend a book as well, too. It goes to Lulwa Kazum, who edited the book The Flying Camel, and it's essays on identity by women of North African and Middle Eastern Jewish heritage. Uh, it's the first English-language anthology devoted to the writings of Mizrahi Jewish women. Uh, some people included are, you know, Rachel Waba, I believe, Ella Shohat, and Lital Levy. So I've just been reading it this week. It's very fascinating. It's a look on a very different segment instead of the typical like Ashkenormativity of Jewish people. It's really taking a different perspective on uh, Mizrahi Jewish women and identity. Fascinating. I will check that out too. Yeah. My nachas this week uh, is an article. I guess we get a we got the we hit the trifecta of print of uh, words uh, all in the nachas. Um, <laughs> but it was a wonderful article that came out uh, in Tablet this week from David Bashevkin, who is a great writer and uh, he works for NCSY. I believe uh, he's a director of education or something like that. Um, but the article is titled uh, "Passing Through," and I, I just found it as a tour de force. I mean, he starts with the Talmud. 
uh, as the basis, in theory, like the basis of it, because uh, this it was an idea that showed up in the uh, Dafyomi of the uh, recently, um, and it weaves together Talmud and Jewish holidays and mourning, and of course, right, the idea of liminal spaces, which obviously is pure clickbait for you know postmodern Jewish hipster doofuses with way too much existential angst. Um, but I really, really like the article. What a line! <laughs> That's very niche. Do you fit those categories, listeners? Um, All of them? I hope so. <laughs> those are our target audience lifting. No, anyways, um, it was a great I article. I said NCSI. NCSY, you remember the ones from the uh, from the, the sweatshirt from the, 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 the South American um, gang? <laughs> well, here's the thing. How could one, we forget? Maybe one of the podcast members doesn't know what that stands for, but was too embarrassed to bring it up on that week's episode. Ah, uh, National Conference of Synagogue Youth. So I don't know Thank if you, you did USY or B'nai B'rith or Nifty as a kid. Did you do? Did you be involved in any of those at all? Youth group? Nothing. I did a bis. I did a Bissell of Hillel. Well, that's before. That's after. This is high school. Uh, what did I do? Like Camp B'nai B'rith? Was that a thing? Summer. B-B-Y-O? Did you do B'nai B'rith? Did you do BBYO? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, BBYO. so this is BBYO, but for from from an Orthodox perspective, like being run from the Orthodox Union and uh, run in a lot of Orthodox synagogues. So he's their director of education internationally. He wrote this excellent article, um, really wove together so many different ideas. Liminality, that's the real clickbait word in that one. Um, so go check it out and uh, we'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 11th, Shabbat Titzaveh. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. And for this week, we have a special thanks to Etienne Ranville of the Boys and Shorts podcast for assistance on parliamentary procedure. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. <laughs>